Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. Our fundamental job as parents is to prepare our children for life, a life which is rewarding and in which they can thrive. A huge part of our lifelong happiness lies in our jobs. If we get the right job in which we feel valued and valuable, in which we build relationships with our colleagues and at the end of it earn the money we need to live, we're more likely to be happy. My guests today are Lucy Clayton and Stephen Haynes. They're the authors of a new book, How to Go to Work, the honest advice no one tells you at the start of your career. Stephen and Lucy have spent much of their rich careers mentoring people at the bottom of the career ladder. This exposure has given them unique access to the challenges that the budding workforce of today experience and feel that we often underestimate what a big change starting work is. They argue that we need to understand that starting a job is a truly transformational time, moving from student to working, from childhood dependency and security to fully-fledged, responsible, tax-paying adulthood. Thank you both for coming along today. Thank you for having me. It, it does you. definitely make it make you realise it is that kind of ultimate transformation into an adult. The tax paying bit of it is the kind of the thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that people don't appreciate still today what a big transformation that is, that first job is? I think it's an enormous move and absolutely underappreciated. We've spoken to a lot of people writing the book and there's that moment where you're first in work, wonderfully characterised by a radio DJ that we did an interview with. And he said he turned up at his first day at Time Out. So you can imagine 1980s Time Out leather jackets. And he's in his dad's suit. It was completely humiliated <laughs> on day one, entirely unprepared for the job. But it's much more than that. It's that showing enthusiasm. It's how to apply yourself to an environment where people are 100 different ages to you. And you might be in a team that is doing a very discreet piece of work or you're a real generalist in lots of different areas. So that switch from school, university, whatever route you've taken, which is all about bells and books and exams and timetables, and suddenly you're into the world that we all know about work, which is kind of you're on your own with, if you're lucky, a boss who wants to support you. So I think it's a huge shift and we know that education just simply isn't preparing young people for that move at all. And also there's a big difference between the role of education in terms of the people that you're surrounded by. So until you leave whatever the final piece of education you have is, you are surrounded by people who are paid to inspire you, widen your horizons, to teach you. And then you stump up at work 
And you're surrounded by people who really, that's probably one of the, their last concerns because they have a completely different agenda, a commercial agenda or a, a, a whole different set of circumstances. So I think that shift is something that we don't prepare young people for. And it's a real, it's almost like having the rug pulled from under you. You might be lucky and have an inspirational boss, but even if you do, that person's job is not to inspire you every day. And that's really fundamentally different from all of the preceding years. And of course, it makes sense when you say it like that. But if you only existed in an environment in which you said people are paid to inspire you, that can come as a huge shock. Absolutely. And one of the things you said which really resonated was, you know, it's people of different ages. And I remember at school, like, freaking out if I had to talk to someone in the year above (laughs) me for, like, to borrow a pencil. (laughs) And we are definitely conditioned to sort of operate within our year group at school. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, not only asked to operate in different year groups, but with different generations. And that's that's presumably really difficult. It's because you might be collaborating with someone on a really close basis who's the same age as your parents and one of the things that we've seen a lot I see it a lot you know my background is in in fashion and in factories it's a really in in garment making factories it can be a, a real stumbling block for young people the idea that you know you might make friends with someone who's 50 that just isn't something that you will have done before and so there can be some resistance to that idea we all know as adults that your friends in the end become, you know, many of them you'll meet at work and they they can come from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of ages. In fact, that's a really joyful thing, the more kind of diverse that group is. But when you're 16 and starting mm. your first ever job, you can think, well, what on earth have I got in common with this person? It can be quite alienating until you sort of break down that barrier. Yeah, and there's something about learning about other people and what they need. My, my mother's great bit of advice to me was always, before a job interview, go and get a haircut. And I always thought it was just to look smart in the interview. But actually, what she was saying was, you're likely to be interviewed by somebody much older than you. Show them respect. And I think a lot of that stuff about millennials being snowflakes, and we've had examples of young people going to work and rolling their eyes or scrolling through their phone, might seem very natural when that's your peer group and you're at school or at university. And suddenly you're in the world of work and these people who are 50 are expecting very different standards of you, very different kinds of behaviour. What you're doing means something else to them. So what we talk about in the book is how to read the room, how to observe what's going on, trying to work out things like company culture, because underneath all of that, underneath all the things we see in work, are those tiny cues which will actually make a huge amount of difference about whether you're perceived to be successful in that job or not so successful and even potentially shown the door. I mean, I'm just looking at your hair and you really need a haircut. It's a terrible so I love, haircut, that you're, I love that you're like, you're quite disrespectful to Marina and I. Luckily, it's a podcast <laughs> and my mother I've been uh, telling you all week. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about him. <laughs> so I think a lot of us parents feel that school prepares you for life, for the workplace, mm. because we sort of, uh, you know, you learn to eventually mm. work. And obviously what you've talked about is, is that school doesn't really inadequately prepares mm. children for the workplace. So what, what are the most important things that we as parents can do to either support that or Mm -hmm. you know that presumably there's a whole different set of skills that Mm. children need to know that can only be taught in a home environment Mm. that will set them in in really good stead for for the workplace what would you say are the sort of important ones I think there's two strands to that that are really important one is about discovery and ambition and I don't mean ambition it's really important to say about the book this is not a book about striving for success or uh, or killing it all of those sort of languages that you often hear in relation to career advice what we written is a book that is about being happy and thriving at work it's and I mean that in the most multifaceted way it's not about kind of raging rampaging success so I mean ambition for being happy and fulfilled at work in coming home and having something interesting to say when someone says how was your day 
But you can only be ambitious within that context if you are given good and, I think, horizon-busting advice at the beginning. The truth is that in schools, careers services and careers resources have been stripped out sort of year after year. Quite often, the people, therefore, that are the official sources of advice for young people are you know, massively up against it in terms of what they can actually achieve and what they've got to play with. But also, if you think about it in really basic terms, they might only have worked in a school themselves. Mm. So in terms of knowing what the options are out there for the next generation, actually, the official source of advice isn't the best one. And that's where parents can really step in and be a different voice in that. And it's pretty easy to do that because obviously it's, it's you know, we can research all options of, of jobs. One of the things that we're doing with the podcast that accompanies the book is not just interviewing the headline role in an industry. So although we do interview the brain surgeon, we also interview the nurse. We will interview the fashion designer, but also the sustainability supply chain manager. Jobs that, you know, people say to me, oh, I want to work in fashion, so I want to be a fashion designer. I do a lot of talking in schools and that's always the thing that comes back. If you are artsy and you love textiles and you love fashion, you say, I want to be a fashion designer. Well, I guarantee you almost certainly don't want to be a fashion designer. It is a rough old path and it is difficult and having your name above the door is very rare and very stressful and it takes a ton of money. But you might be an amazing buyer or a stylist or an art director or all of these jobs, which your careers advisor probably isn't telling you about. So mm. I think parents can really be a bolster and, and a, an alternative voice to the careers advice. And then the other stuff is about skills, as you say. Mm. And the, the research suggests actually that between about nine, the age of about nine and 11 is when those uh, aspirations start to be formed, when the idea of what you want to do in work starts to embed in a, in a child's mind. So and, and this is presumably when they've stopped wanting to be an astronaut. Absolutely. So you, you get the kind of fantasy play stuff, which is fantastically enriching. So that's astronauts and princesses and so on. And then you move into this phase of genuinely thinking, what's my place in the world? And actually loads of parents are seeing at that age maybe more of a bias towards the arts and humanities subjects, maybe more of a STEM thinking going on, the engineering brain starts to kick in. And that's when those aspirations are formed. We're, we're giving careers advice way too late. Right. And there are some brilliant projects, though too few in my view, that are actually doing this at primary school, not just the headline careers, the policewoman or the doctor or the lawyer, but actually those supply chain consultants kind of careers as well, starting to inspire young people about the breadth of what's out there. And that has two really important effects. One is it helps with subject selection. So we're asked really young whether you want to go for physics or modern foreign languages or whatever. It's going to help make that link between what kind of job you want to do and what subjects you're learning today. And the second thing is to broaden that ambition, as Lucy says, that, that sense that this is what I can do, this is the kind of person I can be. And that lift is huge. I've been doing some work recently with um, deaf young people and their sense of what's possible. And they are told at 9, 10, 11 years old, you're deaf, you won't be able to do this. And that's heartbreaking. And it's also quite wrong. So, you know, we're just putting loads of examples of deaf driving instructors and people working for NASA who are deaf and bloggers out there and saying, look at what all these brilliant people are doing. So I think it's really important that parents can encourage, as you say, that discovery because it's proven that that's when these aspirations are formed. 
Presumably too. I mean, you talk about these sort of decisions starting to be made as early as nine, but you know, these these children, if they go to university, aren't going to enter the workplace until they're what twenty one, twenty two. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. And if I look at what the workplace, you know, looked at like a decade ago, I mean, a podcaster that didn't <laughs> even <laughs> exist. Right. So that's really important, and we talk about that in the book. Um, uh, there's something like a third of the jobs that we have. Uh, that they, they, our children will be doing in the future just simply don't exist today. And when you say the future, are we talking the next 10 years? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the really years? near future, which is why, again, and I'm not, you know, we have nothing against careers advisors, but the truth is if those jobs don't exist, they are not telling you about them. Yeah, and sorry to all the accountants <laughs> out there, that job just simply won't be there in a decade. AI is coming in in a big way and just replacing a huge amount of work. And I think there's something as well about, you know, my dad when he was younger went and did an apprenticeship from school and he went and did the same job for about 40 years that just simply doesn't exist either so we need to not just teach these practical skills about how to do the job but how to navigate through the workplace the kind of things you need to do to be able to build your resilience or to be able to plan your career in a certain way if you choose to do that so there's a lot of different skills and again careers advisors are still looking at what kind of university do you want to go to mm. and what kind it's of very linear like isn't it the, the path you'll be taking and you know it, it's bizarre that that process hasn't been sort of radically improved over the years when I was at school you did a cd-rom quiz I'm so old <laughs> and you know it, I don't think I even did a cd-rom quiz <laughs> I think it was on paper <laughs> I definitely remember the cd-rom element because they were really excited about the flashiness of that which now feels mortifying um but you know that that. My sister is an early years teacher and a brilliant one, and she loves her job and is passionate about it. And that equivalent quiz, she's a bit younger than me, so it probably wasn't a CD one at that point. It might have been on an actual computer, but I told her to be a funeral director. Now, whichever way you look at it, a funeral director is pretty much the opposite. I mean, apart from midwife, it's pretty yeah. much the opposite of the job that she ended up doing. So I think having some, so that's the sort of the first thing I think parents can mm. do. And then I think the second stuff is about skills based, sort of preparing beyond the classroom. What can we do to kind of get them work ready? And one of the reasons we wrote the book is we were kind of sick of employers, particularly kind of whinging on that young people just aren't prepared for the world of work, but not really practically telling them what they should do about it. They were just sort of grizzling. And that's not that helpful for anyone. And there is this gap in expectations and skills. So in terms of the skills stuff, I think the first most important thing you can do is encourage your child to have any sort of job as early as possible. Now, (laughs) on a basic level, that's loading the dishwasher when they're really small. And then it's waitressing the moment they're alive. (laughs) You can let them out of your sight. Saturday jobs have... The the popularity and accessibility of Saturday jobs have really reduced in the last decade. And that is... Young people are suffering from that. And why do you think that is? Partly there are some sort of boring logistics, sort of health and safety-ish regulation stuff around that. But one of the things, we do talk in the book about how you can overcome that. And actually, it's really possible to make sure that you're simply the most informed on sort of the latest legal framework and all of that sort of stuff. So um, you shouldn't be put off by that, I think is really important. Because having a Saturday job is the first experience you have outside your immediate social circle, outside your immediate cosseted school and home world. And it's your first opportunity to sort of decide who you are in the world of work. And it may not sound glamorous washing up in a pub or doing a paper round or babysitting, but the skills that you are building doing those are skills that you will continue to use for the rest of your working life. So if you can start your Saturday job at 16, it is a head start 
like no other. And one of the things we've done in the book, we have all, all of these amazing contributors from all sorts of different industries, from activists to artists who have uh, contributed their wisdom. So it's not just us wanging on, it's these amazing people contributing to this project. And throughout the book, we don't just cite the job they're famous for, we cite their first ever Saturday job, because I think it's essential to make that connection. And actually, quite often people forget to talk about their early career moments at the point at which they reach the apex of their career. And for young people, that's a real disconnect then. So it doesn't matter if you were a waitress in a Regency-themed cafe, to use Gabby's example, who's now creative director at House and Garden, she says that she thinks about the skills that she learned in that Regency cafe, <laughs> it's niche, uh, every day of her working life. So I think we can't overemphasize that enough. So I think if you can help your child start work as early as possible in whatever small, kind of embarrassing, small, unglamorous capacity, do it. Mm. Don't you think is the Absolutely. sort of solid first thing and to do? There's this, there's the wonderful initiative about you know bring your kids to work day. I think that's fantastic stuff. Um, my daughter who's seven came along to work recently, brought her into my office, sat her down, said, "Right, what's on the agenda for this meeting?" And started rolling about <laughs> laughing. She said, "I'm seven. I don't do this." And I said, "Well, you know, this is your first exposure to the world of work. There is something about seeing that world and being involved in it." And I think that used to happen a lot more. I don't think it happens as much now. Um, the other thing is, you know, we really load academic expectations on our kids. They just simply do that much more work. And I think that young people aren't doing Saturday jobs. And certainly what I've read of the surveys about why that's the case. There's a great report on this about six months ago by the Resolution Foundation, which found that... Um, that half as many young people are doing jobs as they were a decade ago. And it is simply because every single moment of their day is filled, whether it's through school or homework or the clubs they need to do. And actually, they could be learning a lot more by just getting that job as they... Washing as, up. <laughs> washing up. <laughs> it sounds bizarre, but it's actually true. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you've, I mean, there are obviously some children that are really keen to enter the workplace. Yeah. There's that, you know, independence, the idea that you're earning your own money that is totally mm. yours. But if you've got a child who's reluctant, who's a bit lazy, mm. are there any kind of tips of how, I mean, you can't force them into the workplace. No. And also, they're probably not going to be very successful if they really don't want to be there. Mm. How can we encourage our children if they're a bit more reticent about entering the workplace? I mean, we talk about shine, shyness at work yeah. in general, uh, aimed at slightly older examples, I suppose. But I think... 
reticence isn't you, know, you shouldn't be punished for it it's not um and and you might not feel as gung-ho as some of your peers about kind of getting out there and earning money or you might not be motivated by money and that's also a legitimate angle to take I suppose it certainly might contribute to your longer term happiness so I don't think that should be something that should necessarily be a force or a prompt the truth is that quite a lot of the people we've interviewed actually weirdly some of their first experiences of work were actually in a really within a family environment mm. so either within a family business or we've even had examples of Jude Yorson who is the uh, co-author of the Stormzy book Rise Up uh, the Murky Story so far which is an amazing book about starting work I would really recommend it and I interviewed him and he said that his dad I mean he was excluded repeatedly from school so his sort of relationship with education was really complex and difficult but his dad made him effectively write the church newsletter <laughs> and That didn't involve him kind of being out in the world in the same way that we've just talked about. But what it did teach him is stuff to do with editing, publishing and the skills that he has gone on to use as an author. So I think if you have a child who doesn't feel like throwing themselves in, you know, down the pub to do the washing up, then I think be creative about what opportunities you're able to, to because actually they're not going to be doing that forever, but it might be something that can just push them over the line. Yeah, it might be starting their own business. Absolutely. I remember when I was at university, I, I was at Edinburgh and I decided that all I wanted to do was sit in a cafe and eat brownies, but there weren't any brownies <laughs> that were good enough to get fat on. So I was like, I can do better. <laughs> right. And it was so, actually I remember my my tutor I was doing history but he was like that's all he wanted to talk about yeah. was you know <laughs> how my, my brownie making business was going but yeah. that's the thing so you know even if you have to create those opportunities yourself and again we've got a section in the book called how to create opportunities where there are none you know those things exist and they are much easier to do you know we can't just bemoan the lack of opportunities it's much easier to start stuff up on yours on your own it's much mm. easier to learn things that you didn't know before to teach yourself graphic design or the things that you you might, you might be missing yeah and the other big part of that, of course, is volunteering as well. And I, I think it's fantastic the schemes that support more and more young people to volunteer, that sense of who you are in a community, what contribution you can make, whether that's helping out at a food bank, which I've done, and is a, an eye-opening and incredibly important experience right through to the, the Duke of Edinburgh's Outward Bound stuff. I, I think that's fantastic and it is teaching those core skills as well. And actually, it's informing values which is something i think really important to do with young people too whatever it is that helps you interact with those skills is hugely important and i think the the message that it's just about um earning money as you say is 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 much smaller than the go and see the world and see what's out there for you to do one of the things we do mention in the book about volunteering though as well is to choose it quite carefully Unfortunately, and J.K. Rowling's charity, Lumos, has brought this out a lot as well. You can volunteer in the wrong way. You can Mm, support the wrong causes. So it's really worth looking in a bit more detail about what it is that's being said by that organisation and how you can contribute to it in a way that suits you, but also being able to pick the right one that aligns with your values too. I mean, I think probably one of the hardest is making that decision. And mm. I suppose one of the things about having a Saturday job is to work out what you don't want to do as well right. as what you do Oh, 100%. Do. Right. I mean, me standing on the shop floor of Next in a regional branch <laughs> of Next, I just knew that retail was not for me yeah. because I sulked from the hours of 930 until that drop shot yeah I was uh, <laughs> and then all the way home <laughs> I was a kitchen porter at a hot air balloon festival carried lots of cruet sets around had a nosebleed decided I was much Went more brain work <laughs> focused became an education policy advisor very different thing but you didn't just jump into becoming an educational policy no. I mean, and that's the thing is that is there a sentiment that is there maybe an arrogance that children entering the workplace feel this is beneath me mm. you know and I think one of the interesting things that you mentioned how all your contributors listed 
did their first jobs is that you do need to start at the bottom the humble yeah. job is a really important yeah. rung on that ladder but is there a sentiment and that's definitely what i i get um the impression of that people feel i'm not going to make your tea mm. how, how you don't expect me to do that right. i remember employing someone once and you know i would always send her an email and quite politely saying these are the things i need done today da, 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 da. and i remember she sat down and she went i'm sick and tired of you bossing me about and I said, <laughs> <laughs> but i'm brilliant i'm telling you what i need done and it, but it was just also, like i am your boss yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how this works i think you're absolutely right and you know we, look it would have been really easy to write the book and at times i'm not going to deny we could have very easily slipped into the you know please don't roll your eyes please don't think that you know this that you're you're too big a deal to be doing these menial tasks but actually I think a lot of that is about this this gap between expectations and reality so one of the things we've tried to do in the book is to very gently reset some of those expectations one of the major problems in social media has not helped this is this sort of myth that you can kind of become an instant success in the workplace overnight or an instant sensation or famous overnight even so one of the stories we tell in the book is of uh, Rob who's an amazing hairstylist saying to an assistant could you sweep the floor please which is a pretty standard sort of hair salon thing to say <laughs> and the response was well I've got 100,000 Instagram followers and he, he, to which he said yes but there is still hair all over the yeah. floor and I think that, that's you know that, that idea that you you do have to start at the bottom and actually what we say in the book is but quite the opposite of that being beneath you there is real grace and freedom in being able to do that early on so if you can get really really good at the basic stuff then Early in your career, there is this amazing joy in being the best at the job you are hired to do. And that is your remit. And your remit kind of ends there. As you start employing people or having people work into you or needing to manage people or having to you know, worry about the bottom line, actually then your focus is really different. But at the beginning of your career, all you have to do is the job you are told to do the best you can every day. And it's really simple. There's something really glorious in that moment. And basically everything that follows is more complicated. So if you can kind of have that attitude and therefore approach it with enthusiasm, one of the things we say in the book is enthusiasm has become really unfashionable and that's a disaster for work. It might work in your social circle, shrugging and occupying your body in a manner that suggests you don't give a shit. Sorry for swearing. That might work when you're hanging out with your mates. But it is catastrophic as an attitude to a job going into work because we need you to be enthusiastic. Your boss wants to know that you're there to actually do something and to make a difference and to support the organisation. So I think that sort of sense that I think if we can undo some of that stuff, then because actually, you know, I had an intern once who just consistently rolled her eyes at me. Even when I was briefing her in a really funny and charismatic way, and uh, which obviously was every time, and I, I, I sort of debrief after her. I think she'd been with us for you know quite a long time, so sort of I really tested the theory. It was six weeks or something, and I said to her, "I don't know that you know you're doing this, and your work is brilliant, your output is brilliant, but your body language undermines." all of that every day and she just looked mortified and I don't think she realized it was happening and she said oh my god I do do that and I don't think she has rolled her eyes I think her eyes have remained focused in the front ever <laughs> since that conversation she just didn't realize it was happening so I think a lot of that stuff is about reframing expectations and those are just social skills and again parents can help with that although it's harder for parents to help with that because obviously we're always telling our children to sit up straight or have better table manners or be more polite so <laughs> I'm not sure that we're necessarily the best voice but we definitely cover that stuff in the book about yeah. how there is nothing wrong with doing the drudgy stuff and also the other thing and it's important that we we talk about this in the podcast too 
And it's a great piece of advice for anyone sort of speaking to someone in a work experience capacity or don't assume that even if it's the job of your dreams, it does not consist of at least some drudge. So even the most glamorous, most exciting roles definitely have a load of boring old admin they have to do. They have loads of stuff that they always leave to the end of the day and then it rolls on to the next day. It's really important to be realistic about that. So I always say to people that I'm mentoring, if you're speaking to someone whose job you think you want to do when you're, you know, in 10 years time, ask them what an average Wednesday afternoon looks like. Because it isn't just about the flashy stuff that you see they're doing or the things that they publicise that they're doing or the LinkedIn post about the thing that they've just got off TV. Or you know, the back of the Telegraph magazine, you know, right, day in the, the life. day of. in the life. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, those day in the life things are just not in any way helpful. It's like, <laughs> I ate my granola. I went to yoga. No one's done any work. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> so I think, you know, ask them what the, the bits that they hate are too. Because every job in, consists of that. There is no such thing as the job where it's all swanning around. Oh, and also the idea that, you know, any job involves graft. Mm. Every person mm. has grafted to get to the where they were. I mean, even blimming Gwyneth Paltrow mm. yeah. has had to graft, has had to work hard. She's got to put the hours to, in. Exactly. Yeah. And that is, but there is a sort of sentiment, especially I suppose on Instagram, you see the, the woman that travels a lot and it's all glamorous and fun mm. and first class lounges. But actually, it's, well, of course she's not going to Instagram the boring taxi ride and the queue at the yeah. airport. And yeah, the, or doing her know, tax return. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to talk about was whether sort of job selection should differ from kind of girls and boys. And I'm obviously believe that there is obviously needs to be equality but Mm. as the mother of children who are sort of 10 and below I feel that a lot of my career choices would have been maybe slightly different had I had a you know a real understanding about what being a mother is like Mm. and Mm. what that takes from you and you know I'm at the stage now where I'm sort of coming to the end of the period of time when my children have really needed me and you know, I hope to work into my 70s because we'll probably live to a 100. So <laughs> I almost feel that there's sort of two eras of a career for women. There's the mm-hmm. kind of the career that you have after you finish university. And then, you know, most women are in their 30s, late 20s, 30s by the time they have kind of children. But then there's another even longer career after your children have mm-hmm. left mm-hmm. home where you, I mean, it was interesting. I was talking to a psychotherapist the other week about um, letting your children go, and she said studies have shown that the you know the the most the, the parents that find it easiest to adjust to this really quite traumatic experience of children no longer needing you, are the ones that have a job, yeah. um, and the ones that haven't devoted everything to their children, and then suddenly they've got nothing. Would you say that your advice to a girl would be? I mean, I. There's something to be said for being paid for the hours you work. My sister's a doctor. And if she works eight hours, she gets paid for eight hours. I see so many women returning to work flexibly, part-time. They're maybe working three days a week. They are essentially working five days a week. They're just Mm. super efficient, but they're only being paid for three. Look, it's brutal. I mean, I, I would really like to think that in the context of this conversation, for the sake of our children, that they will be able to make much freer and less constrained choices based on the fact that we have to fix the the, the fundamental equality about whose job it is to, to cover the childcare over those years. You know, historically, and certainly when I was at the peak of my my sort of first career, I suppose, because again, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is there's no such thing as, you know, a, a linear beginning to end career and, you know, multi-hyphen versions of those things actually make that this issue much easier. But at the point at which 
I was you know, being appointed to the board, age 28, youngest person ever at an ad agency, I was also pregnant. And so there is no good time to suddenly disappear. And there was no way that I could navigate that set of choices in a way that was more lucrative or more protective of my professional agenda. Now, I, that cannot continue. We are hemorrhaging talent of young women at that age. And that is a terrible thing for businesses and it's a terrible thing for families, let alone the individuals concerned. So I would really like to think that we are able to make progress, real radical progress over the next decade or so in order to make that fairer and make those options more flexible. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff talked about flexible working is, you know, it frees us all up. But actually what you see a lot is, you know, women going home, doing the nursery run, putting the children to bed and then going back to work. And I don't know that that constitutes liberation either. I don't think that feels like a win. So I think it's a really murky and difficult time. One of the things we say in the book, and this is not gendered at all, but the truth is if you if you plan in your adult life to have a family, there is a period in your early 20s when you're doing your first kind of usually proper job where you have the freedom to take risks, to say yes to things that involve travel or disruption or you know a a sort of different shape of a lifestyle say yes to those things then because they are much easier to say yes to than later when you might have three other small people who you have to consider as part of that sort of the mechanics of your daily life so I think that would be the sort of one gender neutral piece of advice Mm. because that's relevant to everybody yeah and there's a lot more to do with fathers as well I whilst I think we're eroding some of the old stereotypes and I certainly know examples of dads who are genuinely having equal careers with their partners that's certainly not the norm Mm. we know that the policy frameworks that sit around this certainly don't support paternity leave in the in the UK in the way that they do in some of the Scandinavian countries I think it's a a huge area for some really significant change and I think there's also about planning to do that as well so it's not just an attitudinal shift it's something you need to be you know I'd like to see boys and young men really thinking about plotting that into their career when they are much younger not just waiting until something arrives and then wondering (laughs) what to do about it (laughs) Which is essentially what women, I think, have done. (laughs) Um, When it comes to that sort of next stage, and we've talked about sort of preparing children for the sort of workplace, but when it actually comes to getting their first job, their sort of first paid job, Mm. I mean, do schools prepare people for, universities prepare people for interviews? I don't think they do, do they? No, I mean, I think it's, it's, again, it's, it's inadequate throughout, really. I think there is... <clears throat> the, the the thing is is that we t- we talk a lot about preparing for interview and then one of the things we don't talk about is preparing for the actual turning up and doing work as yeah. well so the good thing the good news is there's lots and lots of information to access and i don't know that you know parents can do some pointing in the right direction for that stuff but i don't know that they necessarily uh, that stuff is all out there and it's all brilliant so mm. that's that's good interview practice is a good thing so if you have friends who are ideally not super close friends but perhaps sort of one step removed maybe even a little bit scary, who you can do interview practice with. Everything from shaking hands, eye contact, you know, imagine you're doing your own kind of crap version of The Apprentice, that final. (laughs) (laughs) Go through the motions. And one of the things that we say in the book is, if you are nervous about interview, and interview is an incredibly artificial and weird situation, especially when you're doing it at the beginning of your career. Later, it becomes much more peer-to-peer, it's more collaborative, but you are being grilled by someone who's really grown up Mm. to give you an opportunity that you really want. The dynamic there is the power balance is all in one way, and it's frightening. So one of the things that really helps that is just having practice. So that 
that involves saying it out loud. Mm. And it's much easier to say it out loud in a sort of rehearsal situation than it is in the bathroom mirror where someone's banging on the door to get in, <laughs> and all those things. So I think it might sound, you know, a bit amdram, but actually practice is a huge part. And just having, you know, gone through the motions helps it helps young people refine what it is they want to say or how they want to present themselves best so doing it with someone who's not quite a stranger but isn't sort of your mum's best mate yeah. it's probably quite a good idea and there's there's lots of how to write a great cv guides out there there are ones that will give you endless questions you might be asked to do uh, you always get to read that thing about you know the crazy questions they ask you at google for the interviews but actually there's there's some much more basic stuff than that that we talk about in the book. So we looked up the anatomy of the perfect handshake. We looked at the scientific evidence behind how to do that single first impression handshake. And if you're not taught to do it, then you could wreck your interview from the start. We talk about things like psychometric tests, but also importantly, when you don't get the job, which can be crushing and can really affect your job search. But we all know when we've recruited people in the past who say, well, you know, it's about your fit with the job. There was a very strong field and so on. It's all entirely useless feedback, how you pick yourself back up emotionally after what can feel like a great deal of rejection, but also how you choose that job quite well. What are they saying to you in the process of the interview about what kind of employer they are, the culture that you might have to work in? So I think there's a lot around that first step into work that is unexplored or underexplored by the usual CV guides. And hopefully there's a few more pointers on that. And well, also I had to, sorry, I had to say yes to a job, I had to accept it. Yeah. What to do when you get the phone call offering you a job? Because most people's reflex are actually say, yes, thank you very much. And then afterwards think, well, actually, did, you know, did I want to accept like, Was I sure about that? Or have yeah. I you not even seen the terms of the contract? So there's some sort of just basic, like the, the sort of, I guess, the choreography of how to accept a job, how to look at the contract and, you know, or negotiate a pay rise before you've started. All of those things. Again, you know, that, that stuff is your parents might not be the best place to, you know, the, the, the market has moved on, the mm. environment has moved on. You need to make sure that you're using current reference points when you're making those because they're massive decisions and they're going to have an impact mm. for the next, you know, year or so. I mean, and the other thing is sort of around failure. I mean, we've all been mm. rejected from jobs. Yeah. And very often children haven't really experienced, I mean, you get some children that haven't mm. experienced that failure. And I guess it's sort of prepping them for, you will be turned down, mm. you will be rejected. Mm. It doesn't mean you're not good. It doesn't mean you're not worthy. It's just part and parcel of life. And actually, what can you take from that? Yeah. And I think one of the really important things, and we see this a lot with the people that we, we're helping. And, I, and one of the reasons we wrote the book is because we want to be able to help just an awful lot more people <laughs> than the sort of one-to-one version that we were doing before. But expectations of parents is a big deal around this time. So parents have forked out for university and are then sort of like, well, why haven't you got an amazing job? And that's not that helpful. I think if you're a parent of a of a person who's sort of doing that post-grad job search, it can be a really exhausting and deflating time. Mm. If you are able to try and approach that yourself with a sense that the traditional route isn't always the only route and a sense that their journey into what might end up being their job of their dreams might look very wonky to you, but you must not panic. You know, I think that's really helpful because there's this additional layer of pressure, which is I need to kind of build on the, you know, my parents' return on investment. And that's not, you know, it just isn't, it's another layer. One of the things that we did with Penguin, our publisher, they got all of their interns to read the book and to reflect on how it made them feel. And I think the most 
fascinating part of that it was really interesting for us because it was the first time we'd had sort of mass feedback of people who were actually having that experience on that very day so it was a real test of whether the book worked or not and one of the most fascinating things that came from that series of interviews was someone who said the worst part of this whole process is after you've graduated and you think I am going to get this amazing job, I'm going to be, I'm going to swan in, I'll have, you said, you know, I'll have my OBE by the time I'm 30, it's all going to be great. And six months later, you realise that actually none of that is true. And he said that his great sense of disillusionment was something that no one had mentioned before, because you have just been geared up to the next stage. And throughout your education, it's next stage, next stage, next stage. And with the job, if you don't get a job, then that next stage is missing. And so he said that the book made him feel so much calmer about that sense of disillusionment, and also what he could realistically do to try and overcome it. But I think from the parent side, difficult though it is, if you can try and not be another additional pressure in that sort of sphere of 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 really hard stuff to navigate then i think you will be doing your kids a massive favor i mean one of the things none of us had to navigate when we were first getting jobs was social media mm. and the fact that you know as an employer looking at prospective candidates I mean, it's yeah. very normal to Google them, see their Facebook. I know that there is a chapter on, on social media in the book. What, what are the kind of crucial sort of... How, how as a parent do you navigate this? Because I think it's quite difficult for a parent who's often kind of a bit anti-Instagram yeah. and all the time mm. spent online to be like, right, you need to clean up your act. How mm. important is that? It's hugely important. And, and there's a huge blessing and a curse with social media. A lot of the young people that we worked with to write the book talked about building your brand online. Because the flip side of an employer going and having a look and seeing you know the ill-advised picture from your uh, freshers week is that actually they'll be looking at what you've done and what you've achieved and, and that's very clear to see so there is a point I think we advise in the book to do this which is about change your online presence from or at least divide the two from what is personal and the sharing with friends and move that to something that is about building your personal brand. Now, that might be setting up a LinkedIn profile rather than the Facebook page. But equally, we know that a lot of young people today are using Instagram or Snapchat or many other different types of ways of communicating. So as a parent, you might not necessarily see what they're looking for. Employers do take this into account. We have a piece on social responsibility in tech as well about what employers shouldn't be doing because they aren't about invading your entire life. But nonetheless, it is worth looking at how do I appear to a fresh pair of eyes and what might be those indicators of somebody being untrustworthy or being ill-advised in what they're or just immature I think sometimes it's a moment of I mean clean up your act is a good expression but it's almost it's just a really useful time to reflect on what do you want to be publishing about yourself and I think the word publishing is a useful Mm. one because it's not you know when we say sharing it sounds so cuddly (laughs) but you are publishing stuff about your identity so If that fits with your ambitions and your aspirations, great. But if it might make you seem a little bit silly, then that's not going to help you. So just take away anything that might be a barrier to entry at that point. It's a good time for a refresh. Mm. We should all do it occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I got got my first CEO job and I did delete quite a few bikini pictures. That was quite recently. (laughs) So... (laughs) 
<laughs> we should all do it. <laughs> but, you know, there's so many news stories of politicians who suddenly, you know, it wasn't Toby Young who was sort mm. of very involved in education. I mean, his career has ended because of some tweets he, he made yeah. when Twitter mm. first started. Yeah, and- it certainly doesn't stop when you go into work. There's this thing called the online disinhibition effect. This is where you think that it matters in a different way when you're online. So you can be saying stuff. Now, we all have that disclaimer that says, you know, these views are my own and not my employers. But even that isn't protection. There's still risk of libel. And isn't that disinhibition effect something that the equivalent of like three pints or something? There's a study (laughs) that shows that basically you're hammered. So so again, so think about it as publishing and imagine you're drunk. And that's a good... It's not a technical benchmark, but it's a good one. <laughs> Absolutely. But also the other part of that is, and, and I really encourage this amongst young people, and I speak as a lifelong campaigner, um, don't let all of this stuff take away your beliefs and your values. Yeah. Don't call it out when you think it's wrong. Don't say that behaviour is unacceptable. Because actually, I know as an employer myself, if I see that campaigning fire, that spirit, then that's helping you get a job with me. That's helping me invest in your cause so I think you get that balance right yeah, and put yourself right. online not your kind of not your slightly drunk uh, not your drunk self <laughs> but I think you're right you know, one of the things we say in the book is don't be afraid to show some personality and you know when we say show you know that's on a, on any platform whether that's in your CV or mm. uh, on your social media I think there is a risk that and I don't, I don't think schools help with this way you sort of like now we're expecting you you're this fully formed person of you know whatever 18 24 to now become a very professional version of yourself. Now, we all know that we hire humans. That's, you know, it's a, it's a very human, very warm exchange when you're interviewing someone or even when you're looking at their CV. We're all very real. So don't feel that you have to hide your personality or to kind of start using very formal language. You know, that is weird and very inauthentic. And authenticity at work is something that's hugely important now. You know, it's not something that we expect you to have a sort of one persona at home and one at work. Those days are gone. So don't feel that you have to kind of clean up your act to the point where you are now this sort of completely... I don't know, sort of vanilla. nebulous vanilla thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's not necessary either. And also, it depends what you want to go into. You yeah. know, you want to go into journalism. Actually, you know, views are really important. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you want to go into you know education, potentially you can't have you know naked mm-hmm. shots of of yourself on Instagram. Yeah, right. I mean, not <laughs> why, why I can't be a politician. <laughs> At the beginning of the bit, you talk about the amount of myths mm. that you know uh, abound around starting jobs that you know people do take seriously if there was one myth that you each wanted to debunk right now what would that be uh mine is very clearly that it's not what you know it's who you know which was something that my grandmother used to say pretty much on repeat for my entire childhood and she was a dinner lady and I think it was very true for her my my grandfather died when my father and his siblings were very small and so she was a dinner lady in a school because to your point about what are the options if you're a widowed mother of three you can only work in a school and you can only work in school hours so she came from a very different set of circumstances and one in which her freedom to make choices and professional choices was unbelievably limited but she also believed that all of the good jobs were snapped up by people who could be hooked up by a few phone calls from daddy. And whilst, of course, that's the case, and we it's still the case, and we see examples of that every day, what that ignores is the fact that the 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 people that you know can be changed overnight, and you are able to make connections with all sorts of different people, especially now with the, the sort of 
the amazing resource that is social media you can make connections you can form new friendships you can find mentors where there were none and I think the expression it's not what you know it's who you know does a very good job of keeping people in their place and again place is something that you can move so I would encourage I mean I have had various jobs throughout my career where someone has helped me get that job and I always made that connection myself so I think if you are coming from a place where you have no relevant experience in your immediate sightline where you have no one who can help kind of make a you know a fairy godmother who can click her fingers and get you into you know the right space then don't think that that means you can't make those connections yourself because in my experience all the best people do yeah great how about you steve all you have to do is believe in yourself uh, <laughs> <laughs> please don't do that <laughs> it's and i think there's a there's a common myth around this that you just have to kind of put yourself on the stage and sing your song and it's perhaps been encouraged by a lot of these talent shows. I don't actually believe in inherent talent. I think people shape things and develop their work over time. I think you learn new things as you go. You try stuff out, you fail. And we talk a lot in the book about this point of failure and what you can learn from it, what you can learn about yourself and how you react to it. So whilst confidence is a magnificent thing and a door opener and certainly gets things done it's always about that willingness to try work things through put the extra hours in and if you feel that moment where you think no I'm going to sit up and do this all night until I crack it that is an extraordinary place to be in work you are genuinely creating something new you're opening up a new door in your own mind as well as something potentially beautiful that you're creating yourself so don't just believe in yourself and hope it will come to you work out where that will take you and experiment and find your own way through that path and certainly when I look back on my career I can only now in my 40s find some kind of thread and it it certainly didn't feel like that at the time I was just going wow that looks interesting I need to do something about that and went and, and gave it a try Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I've absolutely loved this conversation. I feel that I'm slightly better equipped for the next stage in life. And I'm really glad that, you know, Ludo is now 10. Um, uh, that I've actually had this conversation because I'm definitely not thinking about careers. So thank you both. Thank um, you for having, for having us. us. Highly recommend the book How to Go to Work is out now. It's a great book for parents to reference, but also for the sort of teenagers, isn't it? Mm. Sort of early teenagers. And it's, it's such a readable thing, full of anecdote. It's not preachy. I've absolutely loved reading it. So thank, thank you. you so much. And thank you all for downloading another episode of Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get this podcast from. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Lucy, Steve and me, thanks for listening and goodbye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com